welcome. This is yet another presentation dealing with Stern against Marshall. But this presentation is, is, is different from the many bankruptcy CLE presentations on Stern against Marshall in that this presentation is going to focus on the constitutional issues. And to help us all understand the constitutional issues, we have one of the leading authorities on constitutional law, Dean Erwin Shemarinsky. Today, law students, wherever they go to law school, learn constitutional law, reading books prepared by Erwin Shemarinsky. Students in preparing for the bar exam after they've graduated from law school in the main, listen to lectures given by Erwin Shemarinsky. Uh, federal judges, when they go to their circuit court conferences, hear presentations on constitutional law by Erwin Shemarinsky. Uh, at the same time, Erwin is the founding dean of an outstanding new law school, University of California, Irvine. Uh, great students, great faculty. Faculty includes one of the uh, leading young bankruptcy professors, Katie Porter. So if uh, any of you lawyers listening are looking for summer associates or new associates to work in the bankruptcy area, you'd be well served by looking to one of Irwin's students. And you're probably going to need some more help in part because of Stern against Marshall. With everything else he's got going on, uh, Irwin has had the time to uh, write an article entitled Formalism Without a Foundation that will be published in the Supreme Court Review that's now available uh, electronically online at Social Science Research Network. Uh, and, and if we could start by talking about that article, Irwin, in the article uh, you state that the most important language in Stern against Marshall in terms of when a bankruptcy court can issue final judgment, which is what most bankruptcy lawyers are most concerned about, uh, is the language which states the question is whether the action at issue stems from the bankruptcy itself or would necessarily be resolved in the claims allowance process. Can you explain for us why you think that language of all of the many statements in Justice Roberts' majority opinion may be the most important going forward? First, thank you so much for the kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be with you doing this. The Supreme Court makes clear in Stern v. Marshall that Congress is denominating something as core as opposed to non-core doesn't determine whether or not the bankruptcy court can issue a final judgment. And I think the key question for bankruptcy courts and ultimately for appellate courts is going to be, when is a bankruptcy court allowed to issue a final judgment? And what Chief Justice Roberts says is exactly the language you quoted. The question is whether the action stems from the bankruptcy itself or would necessarily be resolved in the claims allowance process. And I think this is a narrow definition of when the bankruptcy court can issue a final judgment. I think it takes us pretty close back to old distinctions that have been previously rejected, like the summary plenary distinction. And so that's why I focus on this is the language that I think lawyers and judges are going to have to focus on in deciding 
when can the bankruptcy court issue the final judgment? How does that partic- that specific statement connect up with the broader discussion of public rights in both the majority opinion and the other opinions in the case? The public rights exception with regard to when there can be non-Article III courts is a curious one. Originally it started, and this is back in the mid-19th century, to say if it's a claim between the United States government and a private party, Congress could choose to assign that to a non-Article III court. The notion would be that since the United States government has sovereign immunity, and it doesn't have to be sued at all, it wants to allow itself to be sued, it could choose to have it come up in a non-Article III court. Probably the best example of that would be, say, the tax court, where the government can say, if you have a dispute over your taxes with the United States, you're going to go to this non-Article III court, the judges of the tax court serve 15-year terms. Or we can think of the Court of Claims. If you have a monetary claim against the United States, well, Congress can assign that to a non-Article III court. Congress didn't have to weigh sovereign immunity at all. However, in the 20th century, the public rights exception seems to get changed from just a claim against or by the United States to something that is more of a public dimension to it. And the more precise definition of public rights seems to get lost. And so the question that the court has to face in Stern v. Marshall is, should the counterclaim that Vicki Lynn Marshall is against Pierce Marshall be seen as being a public right because there's more of a public dimension to it? And Chief Justice Roberts says, no, this isn't what we mean by public rights at all. If you go back to the mid-19th century, public rights is really a claim by or against the United States typically a claim against the United States, says this doesn't fit within the notion of what we mean by public rights. But if we take that restrictive definition of public rights as being a claim by or against the United States, doesn't that mean that virtually nothing that a bankruptcy judge will be deciding comes within the public rights exception? And doesn't that mean that perhaps bankruptcy lawyers ought to be focusing not so much on the specific language or not exclusively on the specific language that you've highlighted, but also focus on the public rights exception. I think if the Supreme Court adheres to Chief Justice Roberts' approach to public rights, I don't think it's likely to be relevant in the bankruptcy context. I think that assuming the Supreme Court follows Stern v. Marshall, the test for when the bankruptcy court can issue a final judgment is just the language that both you and I have read. The question is whether the action is an issue stems from the bankruptcy itself or would necessarily resolve in the claims allowance process. If so, then the bankruptcy court can issue a final judgment. If not, then the bankruptcy court can't issue a final judgment. Why then does the majority opinion spend so much time discussing the public rights doctrine uh, as revealed in the Northern Pipeline plurality decision and the Grand Financiera majority decision. I take it, your, is, is it your position that those discussions are not necessarily going to be helpful to bankruptcy lawyers in trying to figure out the scope of Stern against Marshall? I think if Chief Justice Roberts' narrow approach to the public rights exception is followed, then I don't think that it's going to be very useful to focus on the public rights exception at all. 
to maybe back up a little bit, in Northern Pipeline, the plurality says that there are three situations in which there can be a non-Article Three court. One is for the territories, one is for the military, and one is for public rights matters. And the court says, that's it, none other than these. And I think one of the things that's always felt unsatisfying about Justice Brennan's plurality for Northern Pipeline is, why these and no more? But other cases, and I think including Grand Financiera, have used public rights in a more expansive way than just claims by or against the United States. And I think that's why there's so much discussion of it in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Stern v. Marshall. But in the end, I think where he leaves it doesn't provide much ability to say that the public rights exception gives bankruptcy courts the ability to issue final judgments in very many circumstances. If we go back to this language that I started with, uh, the language that you have flagged as being especially important, whether the action stems from the bankruptcy itself or itself would necessarily be resolved in the claims allowance process, uh, wouldn't that suggest that the reasoning of Stern would apply to counterclaims based on federal law as well as state law. Is there anything in that language that connects to the majority opinion's repeated use of state law in describing the counterclaim? You make a great point. Um, now, the holding of Stern v. Marshall is just about the ability of the bankruptcy court to issue a final judgment with regard to the state law counterclaim. And in the last paragraph of his majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts emphasizes that narrow holding. But the question you raise is, why draw the distinction between state counterclaims and, say, federal law counterclaims? In fact, from a more normative perspective, there's something to me that's very puzzling about Stern v. Marshall, and it's also very puzzling about Northern Pipeline. What's so objectionable about a non-Article III court deciding a state law claim. Who, after all, usually decides state law issues? State judges. They virtually never in this country have the Article III protections of life, tenure, and salary guarantee. So if it's so objectionable to decide state law claims, why doesn't that extend to other things, too, including federal claims? That's why I think that the approach of Stern v. Marshall could have such long-term implications, but I include answering this question as I started. Chief Justice Marshall, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, is very clear that all that he's discussing is the state law counterclaims. It's the reasoning that I think has much broader implications. Uh, and indeed, in your article, and, and, and it just reinforces what you said, you quote from that language by Chief Justice Roberts, and then state, as, as you've just stated, it's, it's almost impossible to see the decision in such a narrow way. And, of course, people that are following what's happening uh, in the lower courts, in bankruptcy courts, in federal district courts, see that in the main uh, bankruptcy courts and federal district courts have not so limited uh, Stern against Marshall. But what we also see a lot of, which you address in your article, a lot of discussion about the role of consent of the parties and whether consent of the parties represents a fix to Stern against Marshall. Uh, I haven't really thought seriously about 
federal jurisdiction and constitutional law since I was a law student. But I'm having trouble understanding how someone creates jurisdiction by consent and how one eliminates this constitutional law issue uh, by consent of the parties. Well, I think in practical effect, this is going to be the most important issue in determining the implications of Stern v. Marshall. If consent can cure this problem, in the vast majority of instances, there's going to be such consent. Parties have long consented since the 1984 amendments to allowing bankruptcy courts to issue final judgments over non-core matters. On the other hand, if consent can't cure the problem, then Stern v. Marshall has huge implications in the bankruptcy context, but even beyond. Think of federal magistrate judges, who also are non-Article III judges. They can hold civil trials, including jury trials, with consent of the parties. That would no longer be so. And in fact, the Fifth Circuit has asked for briefing on the question of whether magistrate judges can continue to do that with consent of the parties. Here's the arguments on both sides. The answer to what you just said is, well, there's a difference between subject matter jurisdiction and the power to issue a final judgment. The bankruptcy court had subject matter jurisdiction in Stern v. Marshall. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts says that quite explicitly. What he was saying is that the bankruptcy court didn't have the power to issue a final judgment. And if you draw that distinction, then subject matter jurisdiction can't be gained by consent, but the power to issue a final judgment can be gained consent, and this problem can all be solved that way. In most of the bankruptcy courts to address the question, the vast majority of them have come to exactly that conclusion. And in fact, there's a decision from the Northern District of Illinois that articulated it just as I put it. But then there's the other side that says that when it comes to Article Three, that's structural. In an Article Three deficiency, a structural deficiency can't be gained by consent of the parties. And when it comes to whether you call it subject matter jurisdiction or the power to issue a binding judgment, that's still about the structural limits that the Constitution imposes, and those structural limits can't be overcome by consent. And I have to confess, I think the latter is logically right, but the Supreme Court may very well choose the former just because it's infinitely more expedient. Well, focusing on the importance of a final judgment, uh, just to be sure that I understand this, is there ever going to be a separation of powers constitutional concern with a bankruptcy court's simply rendering findings of fact and conclusions of law, something short of a formal final judgment? I don't think so. I think that, I mean, of course, what the 1984 amendments provided was that as to non-court proceedings, it could proceed in that manner. Magistrate judges traditionally do findings of fact and pose conclusions of law. And I think that that would be constitutionally permissible because the bankruptcy court is then functioning as an adjunct of the district court, something that Northern Pipeline would have allowed. Now, let me qualify the answer by saying the way in which the Bankruptcy Act is written draws a distinction between core proceedings and non-core proceedings. Right. We've got that statutory problem. That's right. Stern v. Marshall now means we have a third category, core proceedings over which bankruptcy courts can't issue final judgments. So do we need a statutory fix to allow post findings of fact and conclusions of law there? Also, I mean, there's a real change in practice if we go to post findings of fact and conclusions of law. 
um, in talking to a conference of bankruptcy judges, I asked for a show of hands of how many had ever done proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law, and very few ever had. Now, Justice Breyer, in his dissent in Stern v. Marshall, raises a real concern of, is this going to lead to a ping-ponging of cases back and forth between bankruptcy judges and federal district court Article Three judges? The day after Stern v. Marshall came down, a bankruptcy judge called me and said, I issue 80,000 to 90,000 orders a year. He said, I estimate 20 to 25 percent of them have some state law claim where Stern v. Marshall might apply. Does that mean as to all of them, I now need to do proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law? When you think of it in those numbers, just going in that direction, those findings of fact and conclusions of law could have a staggering effect. And, of course, you could multiply that by your earlier remarks about whether the distinction can properly be drawn between state law matters and matters arising other, under other federal statutes. But I wonder if I can conclude our conversation the same way that you conclude your article. You conclude your article with a statement, there is a desperate need for the Supreme Court to clarify the scope of its holding and whether consent is sufficient to cure the defect. Do you see any realistic prospects for the Supreme Court so acting in the foreseeable future? Yes, though not this year. Stern v. Marshall was decided June 23, 2011. That doesn't allow enough time for matters to get to the Federal Court of Appeals and then be ready to the Supreme Court. But the Ninth Circuit in November asked for amicus briefs on the question of whether Stern v. Marshall applies to fraudulent conveyances. That's mm -hmm. something that split the lower courts. They asked for a briefing on the question of can bankruptcy courts cure this by doing post-finding conclusions of the law. As soon as the Ninth Circuit rules, and as soon as other circuits rule on this, it will then be poised for the Supreme Court. I hope it can get there as soon as next term, October term 2012. Because I think the one thing that everyone would agree to is there's now, I'd say dozens, hundreds of cases from the bankruptcy courts struggling with these issues, and there's just a desperate need for guidance in the Supreme Court. I don't think the majority of the court began to contemplate what the effects were going to be of its holding in Stern v. Marshall. Erwin, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us, and, and let me urge everyone that's listening to take the time to go to SSRN uh, on the Internet and download Irwin's manuscript. Thanks again. Anytime. It's really a pleasure.